Amen. You can be seated. We turn our attention today towards Easter. We've been in a series and we've finished that up, and now we, we look towards Easter. The reality is, is that we come every week not to remember some cliche or to think about some, some event that doesn't matter. We come every week celebrating Jesus' resurrection. His death, burial, and resurrection. Every Sunday, every Sunday we come, it is an Easter celebration. We don't come here because we know where Jesus is buried. We come here because we know that there's an empty tomb and a throne that he now sits upon. That's why we're here. We come because we know that our suffering Savior is now our risen Lord. That's why we're here. And so so we come every week with that intention, but we do as the church calendar comes around, you know, wherever we, we always take time to intentionally, to specifically stop and think about the resurrection, his, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and the implications for our life. And so as we look towards Easter now, it's, it's, it's really no different. You see, it's worthy of celebrating, right? I mean, it's worthy of remembering specifically. In his death, Jesus put death to death. If he was still dead in the grave, death would still have power. Death would still reign. But in his burial, in his death, burial, and resurrection, Jesus put death to death. The day that Jesus rose from the grave, death died for all who would believe in him. It, it, it has no power. It has no sting. There, there is no lasting, eternal distance or separation from God. Certainly there's a physical death, but there is no condemnation. There's no, no separation, no eternal distance from our Creator. But rather, we gain in Christ eternal life, this hope of of relationship, this hope of closeness, this hope of, of seeing Him and being in His presence because Jesus is alive. And so we are going to celebrate. We are going to, to take time and, and think specifically about this. And because we've come out of an Old Testament book and an Old Testament prophet at that, I thought it would be fitting. Why don't we take time and think about the resurrection from an Old Testament perspective, or, or at least take a look at the prophets and see what God said would happen and how it did happen. What God said will be, how it came to be. And so I, each week we're going to come in this series and we're going we're to take an Old Testament prophecy and compare it and, and see it in the New Testament fulfillment. Today, as, as we gather, we're going to be talking about the sign of signs. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 12, verses uh, 38 through 41. And if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and flip there. We're going to spend most of our time there. But we will be relying heavily and referring heavily to Jonah, which is the series we just came out of. If you think about it, it's important, I think, that we, we do this out of Jonah, because if we had studied Jonah and then come to this place where we walked away from it and never thought about the New Testament fulfillment of the prophecy that's there, we wouldn't be doing service to the book of Jonah. We wouldn't be studying why Jonah is in the Bible. Certainly, we were challenged by it. I was challenged by it as we studied each week the, the who is God and what does it reveal about us and what are we going to do in response. Certainly, I grew in it and certainly I heard of, of, of stories from you about how you were challenged in the Scripture and how you saw God more fully and, and bigger in your life. But if we stop there, we miss, I think, one of the main reasons God put Jonah in the Bible. Because there is a sign that points to his son. And it's what I think Jesus say, says is the sign of signs, the sign that trumps all 
signs. And so we're going to be studying that today, Matthew chapter 12. Before we jump into it, let me just let me just give you some context and let you see what the chapter's about, because we're kind of jumping into the end of the chapter. We're jumping into the middle of Jesus' life, and I just want you to have a perspective as we read. So Jesus is doing miraculous things. He's teaching amazing things, and he is challenging the religious leaders and their perspectives and their opinions, and he is actually undermining their authority, and they don't like it. You know, they're pretty frustrated with him, and so they're doing everything they can to undermine him and set him up for failure, and so every time they get a chance, they they question his teaching, they, they challenge what he does, and then ultimately, they just do whatever they can to, to unseat him and make him look bad in the eyes of those who are following him. In this chapter alone, we see Jesus at the beginning of chapter 12, Jesus is accused of being a lawbreaker, of being a Sabbath breaker. It's a a major law for the Jews and the Israelites. It was a major thing for them. And so they made all kinds of rules about what they could and couldn't do on the Sabbath. And, And none of them are in the law. None of them are in the law given from God. But they had made all these other rules, all these other laws, so that they wouldn't come close to breaking the other one. And they emphasized their laws or their rules as much as God's rules. And they said, if you you do these things, you've broken his rule. And that's really not the case. But but they got angry with Jesus because as he was walking along, he and his apostles were, were breaking the heads off of grain and they were eating the grain. And they're like, well, you're breaking the Sabbath. What are you doing, lawbreaker? And then to make it worse, to top it off, he challenges them a little further. And it's like, well, hey, what if I heal this guy on the Sabbath? I mean, that's a good thing, right? I mean, shouldn't I just be able to heal him and make him better? And so he heals a man on the Sabbath, and and they are upset. In fact, they're so upset that they go off, and they try to figure out a way to destroy him. That's what the text says. They seek to destroy him because they're so frustrated with how he's challenged them, and they can't say a thing about it. I mean, just imagine that's who you are. This is the kind of resistance he felt. This is the kind of resistance he faced. So one day he's out doing what he does, teaching, loving on people, and he comes across a guy who is demon-possessed, and he casts the demon out. So not only have they called him a lawbreaker, not only have they they tried to to show him as someone who wouldn't keep the Jewish law and so unseat him that way, they turn and say, you're not just a lawbreaker, you are empowered by Satan himself. And he's like, that doesn't even make sense. And he shows them the ludicrousy and the, how illogical their answer is that he is not empowered by Satan, but, but ultimately they get even more frustrated with him. And that's kind of where we pick up the story as they are just tre- testing and trying and doing all they can to show him to be a false prophet, to be one that's not sent of God and to be Be one that's of the enemy. And that's kind of where we pick up the story. Matthew chapter 12. Read with me in verse 38. Then, excuse me, bet you enjoyed hearing that over the microphone. Then, some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. I mean, just think of what they just asked for. Just think about this for a minute. He just cast a demon out, and they said that they didn't like his power. They didn't, like, they didn't think the source of his power was good. He, he had healed a man on the Sabbath, and they said he was a lawbreaker. And I didn't show it to you, but back in, chap, uh, back in verse 15, there was a point where Jesus withdraws from the naysayers. It says that many people follow him, and then he heals them all. Now, we don't know how many all is, but it sounds like it's at least 
many. It's not one or two. You know, and we don't know exactly what he healed them of, but we know they were sick and they needed healing and he supernaturally provided power that made them well. He's been doing all kinds of things. And they have the nerve, they have the gall, they have the guts to stand up to him and say, Teacher, <clears throat> we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them. It's always different. When you get answers from Jesus, it's sometimes it's not ones you want to hear. And he just lets them have it. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was in the in the belly, or for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Before we, before we go any further, I just want you to see the irony of what just happened. Jesus is talking to what might just be the most moral, the most clean-looking group of religious people who have ever lived. The Pharisees make Mormons look sinful. All right? They followed the law. Externally, there was no fault in their lives. Paul Paul talked about this in his own life, of how he followed the law fully. He did everything he could to follow the law. The, the, the Pharisees were known that they would, they would uh, tithe on their mint and cumin, the, the, the spices in their spice racks, the things we don't even think about until it's time to make some spaghetti. They're tithing on it. They were so serious about this that their life was built around this. And then he just compared them to Nineveh. You remember what he had to say about Nineveh and Jonah? As he called Jonah in chapter 1, he called them and said, called to Jonah and said, go to Nineveh, that great city. Their evil has come up before me. Nineveh was a sinful City. They were the original sin city. Las Vegas has nothing on Nineveh. What's happened in Nineveh stayed in Nineveh, and if you didn't like it, they killed you for it. They were a violent, horrific people. They exercised their power by demonstrating your weakness. They were constantly violent and hurtful and harmful to people. And yet he looks at this religious people. And he says, they are going to condemn you in the end because they believed. You see, the reality is, I think, I think what Jesus is getting at here is that Nineveh got something that the Pharisees were missing. They missed it. And I, I think the reality is, though, I mean, you just stop and take just a second to, to process what's going on in this passage. We're surrounded by this kind of thing every day, all day, in, in the world at large. I, I, I don't know if you remember this or not. Recently, I went to a conference. This is several months ago, back in November. Went to a conference with Scott Sturm, actually, and a few of us went and, and stood out and, and had, had conversation with people at the Skepticon conference. It's the largest gathering of skeptics and atheists in the Midwest. It happens right here at the tip of the Bible Belt in Springfield, Missouri, 
you know, 600 some odd churches in the metro area. And I don't know that you really call this a metropolis, but you know, it's the surrounding area, 600 some odd churches. And we happen to have the biggest, largest group and gathering of skeptics and atheists in, in the nation. So we go and, and, and it was actually kind of surprising because when we went, I walked in and I was like, man, this feels like a church conference, like a religious conference. Like they're going to they're going to be telling people about Jesus, but they're not there to talk about Jesus. They're there to talk about all the reasons why they don't like Jesus. So there's main speakers, there's uh, breakout sessions, and there's vendors all along the hallways and just selling and trying to get you to understand why you should think like they think. Now, we weren't there to go to the, to the conference. We weren't there to go to the sessions. We didn't sit in on any of them, but we took opportunity to have as many conversations with people as we could when there's two things I tried to do in every conversation is ultimately to get them to, to a place where they saw that they were having to exercise faith. They were having to exercise religion as much as I exercise religion and, and, and my faith because they don't have any more evidence than we have. In fact, I think our evidence trumps theirs, and, and I would show them that, and I would tell them that. But it's not by sitting and talking to them about the, the young earth versus old earth. It wasn't about getting them to agree with me about Jesus being divine. I just simply brought them to a place where I asked them what they were going to do with Jesus. What do you do with Jesus? In fact, I asked them at one point, I was, every one of them I talked to at some point in the conversation, I would also ask them, well, why, are you, why, why do you call yourself a skeptic? Why do, you, why do you think of yourself as a skeptic and not just say, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm an atheist? And, and the, their answers are all over the place. I don't think any of them really agree upon any one thing. But I think to sum it up, to summarize and boil it down, I think their answers essentially were this together, I, I think, is that ultimately we just don't think there's enough evidence to believe in God or Jesus. Now, I don't know if you catch what that's saying. You see, what they're saying is if somebody gave me the right evidence, if somebody gave me the smoking gun, if somebody showed me the right sign, then I would believe. They're just like those Pharisees. You know, the thing is, though, you don't even have to go to a skepticon to find that, do you? I mean, I hope, as, as believing people, as Christian people who follow Jesus, I, I hope that you recognize there's people in your life and have found people in your life along the way that you've shared Jesus with, and they come with questions. And I don't think questions are bad. But have you ever met that person that every time you bring them an answer, they just got one more question? Oh, well, what about suffering in the world? That's a pretty tough one. Let me share with you my perspective. Oh, well, okay, well, what about this? What, what about that? How can you believe the Bible? How do you know that's true? Oh, well, here's my perspective. Oh, well, well wait, I, I, got a, I got another question. See, if you just give me the right answer, if you just show me the right thing, then I can believe, but you haven't satisfied me yet. You haven't shown, you haven't proven it enough yet. I need another sign. See, the reality is we don't even have to step out into the world to find this, do we? Because the reality is, is that even in this room, there are people who struggle and fight with doubt. 
how can I believe in this guy? And you sit in a room full of Christian people and you're trying to figure things out and you're looking around and you're thinking, everybody's got it together. Why am I the only one with these doubts? Why am I the only one with these questions? Why isn't anybody helping me? Why doesn't anybody understand why I question? I, I know you're here today. And I know you're probably not alone today. See, we're all a little bit like the Pharisees. But in this answer from Jesus, in this passage from Jesus, in this, in this answer that was in their face, He didn't let them stay there. He didn't just appease them and give them another sign. He didn't just walk, walk away, but He gave them the answer they needed, and in it, I think, we are given the answer of answers. We are able to see the sign of signs that silences all questions, or at least is the beginning of answers to all questions. The sign of Jonah. So, I mean, we have to answer the question, right? I mean, because I could just say the sign of Jonah and walk on, and you'd be like, well, wait a minute, what's the sign of Jonah? You're not helping me. Well, there's a lot of de debate about the sign of Jonah, but I think, at least in this context, there's not a lot of room for debate. I mean, what does Jesus say? He says it in verse, in verse 30, 39. He says, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given except the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What do you think he's referring to? I mean, from standpoint of being able to look back in history, we, we've got it pretty good, right? He's talking about his death, his burial, and his resurrection. You see, Jesus is saying that you don't need another sign. This evil and adulterous generation is going to be given everything it needs in my death, in my burial, in my resurrection. This is the sign of signs. I mean, think back to how this plays out in Jonah. So Jonah chapter 1, God calls, Jonah runs, he hides, he jumps on a boat. Right? The storm rages, and, and the sailors are scared and freaking out, and, and Jonah's like, well, it's my fault, so throw me over. They're like, no, we're not throwing you over. We cannot throw you over, because that's you'll die. Finally, they're like, well, we don't have another choice, so out you go. Jonah seeks to the bottom, and, and what happens? It says in verse 17 of Jonah chapter 1 that God appointed a fish, a great fish, to come and swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Now you all remember, I think if you were here, you remember Jonah is pretty excited at this point because once he got to the bottom of the sea, it talks about the roots of the mountains and the weeds coming up over his head. Once he gets to the bottom of the sea, he realizes death doesn't look so good. God help me. So he cries out, God sends the fish, the fish picks Jonah up, and Jonah's alive. And he's saved. And he's pretty excited in chapter 2, right? I mean, he's praising God from the belly of the fish. He's so excited about what God has done. He's praising Him. And in the process, at the end of day 3, or sometime in day 3, we don't know exactly when, God talks to the fish, directs the fish to the, to the beach, and says, spit him out. And so in verse 10 of chapter 2, it says it vomits him out. I think at that point that Jonah's got a whole new perspective on life. Wouldn't you? <laughs> I mean, 
I, he just picked me up off the bottom of the sea and carried me around in a fish. So God calls, and you know what Jonah does? He does the same thing you would do. He gets up and goes, and he preaches to Nineveh, and Nineveh repents, and God pardons him. Well, you guys know that eventually Jonah shows his true colors, and he's not really happy about that, but, but that's another part of the story. What is Jesus referring to? It must be his death, burial, and resurrection. Because tossing Jonah overboard was certain death, right? I mean, people don't survive being thrown out into the middle of the sea in the midst of a storm. It just doesn't happen. In fact, that's the reason they knew he would die, and that's the reason why the sailors didn't want to throw him over to begin with. If you go back and read it, they were doing everything they could not to have his blood on their hands. They knew he was dead. And wouldn't you think he was? As his head drops below, I mean, it's that big Titanic moment, right? You, you guys remember that movie. I'm not that old. He sinks and it kind of disappears in the water. Well, that's all, we, that's all he got. They go on. What do you think? I mean, by all accounts, Jonah's done. He's dead. But by the power of God, he is saved. And three days later, he's shown to be alive. What is the sign of Jonah? The sign of Jonah points to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Plain and simple. Now you might see places in the passage and you might see things that, that you could add to that. And it's, oh, it's the preaching of Jonah as well. But plain and simple, without buying a $10,000 degree from seminary and buying thousands of dollars of commentaries to stick on a wall, you can see this, you can know it for certain that at, it, at a minimum, the sign of Jonah is Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And Jesus says, just so happens to be the sign that this evil and adulterous generation needed. And really anyone who's questioning, anyone who's doubting, anyone who's always looking for another sign, that's what they Need. Let me summarize the thought for you. Let me, let me condense this into a, to just one succinct thought. I hope it's succinct. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the foundation and fulfillment of all that God has promised, would, and will happen. Let me say it again. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the foundation and fulfillment of all that God has promised, would, and will happen happen. We're actually going to kind of walk through this just a little bit so that you can see that broken out. See, the way Jesus sets this up, the way he sets it up, we, we shouldn't hear him saying that this sign is the only sign that he is ever going to work, that this is the last sign that he's going to work, and that's it. You don't get any more. Certainly, he's prophesying at the end of his life, and he's talking about something that's going to happen to him, but he's not saying the sign of Jonah is it. I'm saying it here, and I'm not doing another thing until I get to the cross. We know that's not true because in the pages that follow, we know that Jesus is going to walk on the water, and he's going to call Peter out. And I mean, think about the miraculous event that has to take place that makes water support the weight of a man, and not just one, but two. He's going to make a, a lame man walk, a blind man see. He is going to cast more demons out. He is going to take five fish and 
Five loaves and two fish, sorry, getting excited. Five loaves and two fish, and he's going to break them apart, and he's going to feed thousands with it. John says that's a miraculous sign if you read his gospel. And not just that, but I mean, he's going to go on, and he's going to do something that's going to blow them all away, because at some point, Lazarus is going to get sick, and he's going to sit at home. I actually sit where he was. He wasn't really at home. He's going to sit where he was until Lazarus dies. He's not going to run to heal him. He's going to sit where he was until Lazarus dies, and he's going to go, and on the fourth day, when Lazarus should be good and stinky, he stands in front of the tomb and he says, Lazarus, come out, and Lazarus comes out wrapped in his death clothes, not smelling bad, alive. And John, again, says that's a miraculous sign. You see, the thing is, is that it's not that Jesus is not going to work signs. It's not that Jesus is done with these people. But the, the, the thing is, is that if they don't get this sign, if they don't figure out this sign, if they don't hold to this one, if they just continue to look past who Jesus is and continue to deny Him and reject Him, they're not gonna, the, the rest of the signs aren't going to matter. They're not going not to do them any good. You see, if we reject the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, it doesn't matter what else we believe about Him. You could go to seminary and have have you could have you could be a doctorate uh, you could have a doctorate in your, in theology and you could know all there is to know about Christology and you could have all the ins and outs all figured out about his divinity and and you could know exactly how he fits into the Trinity. In fact, you could have full wisdom and understanding of the Trinity, but if you deny the resurrection, that does you no good. Because you still don't really know who Jesus is or what Jesus has done. You're still denying an essential piece of Jesus. You see, it does you no good to know about Jesus until you know Him. You see that? You get that? You can have all the information about Him. But as long as you reject His resurrection from the dead, It won't matter. Now, don't, don't hear me saying what I'm not saying. We need to know who Jesus was. We need to know that He's the second person of the Trinity, eternally distinct from the Father and the Holy Spirit. Father is God. Son is God. Holy Spirit is God. But Father is not Son, and Son is not Holy Spirit, and Holy Spirit is not Father. We need to know that Jesus is the eternally distinct second person of the Trinity. But until we come to the place that we have trusted and believed in His death and resurrection, that knowledge will do you no good. It's great to know and see the power of Jesus at work, to, to be able to walk with Him. Just imagine what it would be like to see a guy's arm shriveled up and stretch out. Just imagine what it would be like to see a guy who's been blind from birth just all of a sudden be able to see. Imagine what it would be like to see a guy laying on a mat who's never walked never once walked in his life. And Jesus says, get up and walk. And that guy doesn't have to learn how to walk. He doesn't have to get on a machine and strengthen his legs. He stands up, picks up his mat, and begins to walk. That would be amazing. But multitudes saw it. Multitudes saw it. And they rejected the death, the burial, and the resurrection, and they died. And in the end, Nineveh will stand and condemn them. The resurrection matters. 
and the resurrection makes everything else we know about him matter. But it doesn't just stop with what we know about Jesus. You see, if we reject the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, all Scripture unravels. It comes undone. Every moment of redemptive history that's recorded in these pages, from beginning to end, it falls apart. It no longer matters. From the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, when God said to the serpent who had tempted Adam and Eve to fall into sin, when he said that you will be able to bruise his heel, but he is going to crush your head, when God spoke that, it wouldn't matter if Jesus never came and never died and never rose again. It would not matter that God made a covenant with Abraham and said, by your offspring the whole whole world would be blessed. It wouldn't matter if Jesus never came and never died and never rose again. It wouldn't matter that God made a covenant with Israel and said, by you and through you I am going to bring redemption and life. It wouldn't matter. If Jesus never came and died and rose again, it wouldn't matter that he talked and made covenant with David, the king, and said, I am going to establish your throne forever. If Jesus never came and died and rose again, it wouldn't matter. The the, the prophets proclaiming all that God was going to do, it wouldn't matter from Isaiah to Jeremiah to Ezekiel to Daniel Jonah, Amos, you name it, name It wouldn't matter. The truth is, if Jesus had not risen again, we might as well throw this out. Because in Him, it's all fulfilled. By Him, it's all made true. Otherwise, it's worthless words on a page. It's no more than a novel. You'd be just as well off reading something like Fifty Shades of Grey. And I know that's shocking. But you take Jesus out of the equation, and this is probably even less interesting. That's shocking. But that's what Jesus means to the Scripture. That's what Jesus means in the midst of God's plan. You take him away. You remove his death, his sacrificial death, and his eternal reign. And you unravel the Scripture. Let me just reiterate the point. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the foundation and fulfillment of all that God has promised would and will happen. That's exactly what Jesus is getting at in this passage He could show them sign after sign after sign after sign, and he had. Then what did they do? Show us another sign. Show us another sign. We reject that one. That's not good enough. Show us another sign. You evil and adulterous generation, they had the prophets. They had the law, and it was meaningless because they rejected Jesus. You see, they had the Scripture. But it was meaningless. Listen, if we reject the resurrection, it's not just about what was that comes apart. If we reject the resurrection from Jesus, of Jesus from the dead, we have no hope in what is to come. 
Paul talked about it in 1 Corinthians 15. They were struggling with the idea of this resurrected body and this resurrected life. And he said, if Jesus is dead in the grave, we are to be pitied above all people. People who have died are still in their sin. You see, if Jesus is dead in the grave, there is no inheritance to look forward to. There is no hope of a coming Savior. There is no hope that one day it will be better. You see, we might as well just go on home and do the things we want to do. You might as well look up all the DIY projects you can on Pinterest. You might as well fill your days with working in your yard and making your flower bed pretty because that's the last thing you got to look forward to. That's as good as it gets. If we reject the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we are without hope for what is to come. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the foundation and fulfillment of all that God has promised would and will happen. Do you see why we celebrate Easter every year? Do you get it? Do you see why we gather every Sunday and celebrate Easter and the resurrection of our suffering Savior who is now our risen Lord. But it's not just negative. It's not just negative thought that comes with the resurrection. You see, there's positive thought as well. Because the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the foundation and fulfillment of all that God has promised would and will happen, because it is and because it truly happened, we now have the hope that there is an answer to our doubts. Jesus is alive. He is risen from the grave. He died a sacrificial death. He lived a perfect life and He was dead and buried. And on the third day He rose again. Jesus is alive and because he is we can now confront your we can confront doubt with hope hope in the empty cross the empty grave and his occupied throne jesus is not just alive he is ruling and reigning and expecting to come back you see he is sovereign over all things he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth I, I don't want you to feel condemned in your questions and your doubt. But I want to point you to the place that everything else is made to matter. You see, we can, we can have the debates, and I think we should have the debates about old earth, young earth, Calvinism, Arminianism, um, um, how we believe the Bible, what good is reading the Bible, should I be a... Do, 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 do Christians have to go to church? Should I be a Christian or can I be a Christian and not go to church? We, we can have all those discussions and all of those debates, but brothers and sisters, do not leave without realizing that none of those matter until you get this right. Your doubts, your questions, they are important. But if you won't look at Jesus and accept and believe and trust in His death, burial, and resurrection, then it doesn't matter. But because He is alive, you can confront your doubt. You can overwhelm your doubt with hope. Hope in Him. And you can point every skeptic you know to the source of your hope. The empty cross, the empty grave, and Jesus' occupied throne. Why 
in the world are you able to get up every day? Why in the world do you have hope in the face of difficulty? I mean, you look at the world around us. You think about what's going on in Springfield just even this last week. In our area. Horrific events. Events that should cause us to this hurt. How could it be? What hope is there? Here's your hope. Here's the hope of every skeptic, of every person that has ever raised a question. Here's their hope. The cross is empty. The grave is empty. But His throne is occupied. So we don't need all the answers. But we need this one. And it makes every other answer matter. Makes every other answer important. See, I really think it all comes down to this. What are you believing about Jesus? Is Jesus just your friend? Jesus is just some nice guy that lived one time and did a lot of cool things. Boy, it would be nice to meet him one day. Is Jesus the guy that if, if he were here today, you, you know that you'd get the perfect answer that would satisfy you completely? See, for those of us who believe in him and his death, burial, and resurrection, it's our hope. But for those of us that reject him, that's what ultimately will condemn us. See, we can reject him. You absolutely can. I won't think less of you if you do. But I'll continue to point you to him. But, you might as well put your name in in this passage. When it says the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn you. Believe in Jesus. What do you believe about him? (laughs) But on the other side, remember who Nineveh was. Sinful, horrific, evil people. So evil that their evil rose up before God. And because of Jesus, his death, burial, and resurrection, they will once one day stand in glory with him. You might as well put your name in that passage if you believe in Jesus. One day, one day, the men and women of the way, your name, put your name there, will stand, will rise up at the judgment. And by our faith, it's not like we're going to be pointing and laughing and condemning and getting a big kick out of it. I don't think that's what it implies. But our faith is going to show that there is no one that has an excuse because God provided a way through the death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus So what are you believing about Jesus? Every one of your doubts, let me encourage you to start with the answer for what you believe about him.
Let's pray.